We sing about the grace of God today um, because the passage that we're, we're looking at is, a, is an awesome scene of the, of the judgment of God that's coming upon, upon the earth. And embedded within it is the, is, is the response that our hearts uh, should have. We saw at the end of uh, Revelation 6, uh, right before the 144,000 witnesses and the, and the martyred saints, the response of the earth at the last seal, which is, to, which is to finally acknowledge that God is the one that's pouring out these judgments, cry out and, and ask for creation to protect them from the one who is, who is seated upon the throne. And now at the, the breaking of the, of the seventh seal, we're going to see heaven's response to to that seal and, and what, is, what is coming. In thinking about how to, how to introduce this, my mind went back to, uh, to a field trip that I took in, in high school to a place called Lost World Caverns. Um, and the experience there that was unique is, is, is probably the first time and it's the only time that I can remember experiencing absolute darkness. I don't know if you've ever experienced that before. Now... Um, Lost World Caverns is a, is a series of caves that, that are that probably been carved out by underground water, and you could take a tour there. I think there's Luray Caverns around here. There's plenty of places like that. And, of course, the, the main attraction is to be able to see the um, stalactites and the stalagmites that, that are typically lit up, and they have a, a pathway that, that leads you on. But, but, but in... But, but in the Lost World Caverns, going as a school group, there's a guide. You go through as a group, and, and they would lead you on the tour. And, and when you get to this spot where this, this huge cavern opens up, the guide asks you to, to stop, and he would turn out the lights. And he had the only uh, flashlight. I mean, the, the lights in the, in the tunnel getting there, you'd see them go out, and they, he could flip a breaker there. And, and um, of course, if you're a teacher... Uh, you know exactly what happened. The minute that the lights went out, you know, all of the boys, ooh, you know, uh, hear the squeals of the girls. They're trying to, trying to, to scare them. Um, that was expected. What was unexpected was the, was just the experience of, of absolute darkness. Being hundreds of feet under the ground, um, there's no possibility there for, for any light to get in, you, I mean, you literally couldn't see your hand in, in front of your face, as, as they say. And I'll tell you, it's an uneasy feeling. The Bible describes hell like that. It says it's a, it's a place of fire, but you're cast into outer darkness. The fire there has no light, but it does have, it does have, have heat. And there's something else that you've probably never experienced and that's absolute silence, absolute darkness and, and absolute silence. Now, some of you in your life have been rendered speechless before. Some of you probably wish others would be rendered speechless as you watch the TV for election season or otherwise. But absolute silence is almost impossible for us to experience here on the on the earth, the world is filled with noise, some good, pleasant, some not so pleasant. I mean, even when no one is speaking, there's background noise. 
the cars driving outside, you can hear the traffic, you can hear the air conditioner in your home. If you're, you go far away from the city and you're alone in the woods, there's still the sound of the birds and, or the wind. There's always something going on in the, in the background. Well, in the passage that we, we find in Revelation chapter 8 today, heaven is rendered absolutely silent as the final seal is opened. And after Jesus Christ takes the title deed to the earth from the Father, he begins to methodically, one by one, unfurl the scroll, breaking each seal as he goes. It's a, it's a flat type of, uh, of document, and it's unfurled this way, and there's a seal on each of the, each of the folds. And, and as we've read, each seal, whenever it's broken, brings a different stage of, of what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation. But all of the six, the ones that we've seen up to this point, are all preliminary judgments. As horrible and, and as, as, as awesome as they are, they're all preliminary, leading up to this final outpouring of, of wrath, divine wrath upon the, the earth. The significance with, we talked about the, um, these little uh, uh, sidebar views that we get to see in the midst of tribulation of what's going on with the saints. So we saw in this in chapter seven, it, it, it's 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 tucked between the the response of the earth to the sixth seal, as I said, crying out and, and trying to hide, and they end with that question, you know, the great day of the Lamb has, has come, or the great day of God has come, and who is able to stand? And then chapter 7 answers those questions. There's the, those who will be sealed on the earth as God's witnesses, some will enter into the millennial kingdom, and then the others will be preserved as martyrs and preserved in, in heaven. And, and chapter 8 picks back up the, the breaking of the, uh, of the seals. And as... The people on the earth cry out, heaven is, is rendered silent as God prepares to unleash the final fury of, of judgment. The Bible calls what's coming next, um, those final days, the day of the Lord. That term is used in the Bible many times. Sometimes it's talking about the entire period. But there are a number of places that it's talking about this pinnacle, this this. The concentrated wrath of, of God, as, as you even see Jesus return with his vesture dipped in blood, and he's pouring out that, that wrath in, in full force. It's, it's an awesome and, and terrible, uh, terrible scene. What's coming now is even more dramatic. And I, I think what's significant about the way Revelation 8 begins and opens up is, is what's been taking place prior to this. Not only is the absolute silence, but, but that follows this continuous and loud praise that has filled heaven up to this point. I mean, heaven is filled with sound, just like the earth is filled with, with sound. Revelation, what we've seen in Revelation alone, chapter 4, verse 5, talks about sounds and peals of thunder that that come from under the throne. When John sees this vision of Jesus Christ, back in chapter 4, he, he hears these sounds and peals of thunder that, that are setting the stage for the, for the choir that is going to take place. Chapter 4, verse 8, the four living creatures, it says they did not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and who is to come. 
Then in unison, the, the 24 elders added their songs of praise and, and the loud angel announces the worthiness of the Lamb to receive the scroll. All of this is happening in, in heaven. As the seals are, are broken, the four creatures, the 24 elders and innumerable angels, and, and then finally all of creation joins in in the, in the praise. A lot of times the Bible talks about trying to give us an idea of, of what something we've never heard sounds like, with like the voice of God. It's like, it's like the sound of many waters. Some of you have been to Niagara Falls or other places where, where it's just this deafening noise. There's not, there's not a piercing sound, it's just this, this roar. And it's a good way to think of this of all of this praise that's going on. Finally, what we just saw in chapter chapter 7, millions of martyrs that no man can number from every tongue and tribe and, and nation are crying out, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the backdrop. And then they're joined with the angels and the elders, all praising the worthiness and the salvation of the, of the Lamb. But as Christ breaks the seventh seal, and the contents are revealed. That's the idea. As he breaks the seal, the scroll falls open, and everyone in heaven can see what's on the scroll. All of, of heaven is hushed. And God's going to show us what they saw that brought their, their mouths to, to silence. We read Revelation chapter 8. Verses 1 through 13, we're only going to look at the first five verses today. And as this hour of judgment comes, uh, there's fear that fills the earth and there's awe that, that fills heaven. And John describes this, this, the beginning of this scene in, uh, in four sites. This unveiling of the, of the seventh seal. In the very first verse, he talks about this deafening silence that's, that's in heaven. That's how he... He opens it. Typically, John says, I looked and I saw. He doesn't say that in verse 1. He just says, when he opened the seventh seal, silence. He then starts talking about seven angels that he did observe, and these angels are given trumpets, and that's in verse 2. Then he talks about the mingled incense of the saints. There's another angel besides the seven that take the trumpets and prepare to blow. There's, a, there's another single angel which mingles this incense and the prayers of the saints. And that's in verses 3 and 4. And then finally, there's this lethal storm that is hurled to earth. And John begins with this deafening silence. Look, if you would, at, at verse 1. It says, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And this scene kind of looks, looks like a courtroom, like the courtroom might, might look right before the jury reads a very significant verdict. It's built into the system. Whenever the, whenever the judge comes in, you, you rise, and, and whenever a, the verdict is about to be, to be read, all eyes are on the, the head juror that's going to read the verdict. And silence at that moment is, is appropriate. In fact, if anyone says anything, even at the reading of the verdict, the judge will bang his gavel and say, um, order in the, in the court. That's not necessary here because of, 
because of what they see that's on the scroll. The, the, the silence at that moment is appropriate because of the seriousness of it, but also the respect for the authority of the, of the court. Everyone knows that the judge has the authority and will carry out whatever the sentence is, and he has the power of the, the state to back it up. There are plenty of places where, where men are called to be silent on the earth. There are also plenty of places where men are called to be silent before the judge of the, of the universe. Psalm 76, verses 8 and 9, these are just a few. The earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment. You ever heard somebody, I probably said some really stupid things as an unsafe person. You ever heard somebody talk about how they're going to explain to God or their they say they want to go to hell because that's where their buddies are going to go and they're going to go there and drink beer and do all of these things. And Well, when I stand before God, I'm just going to tell Him how wicked the church is and how the church is full of hypocrites. When you stand before Almighty God, you won't be even standing. You're going to be on your face and you'll be rendered silent, just like these here. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20 says, The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all of the earth be silent before Him. And while silence is demanded of men before God, I can't find anywhere else in the Bible where heaven is silent other than this place. Heaven is a place of ceaseless praise. And that's been unending even before creation, before the creation of the earth. Even before the first saint entered into heaven and began praise to God, there, was, there were the angels. The angels that were there, they praised God. The even Satan, who tried to rise above God, was, was one of the heavenly choir masters. Praise and joy and loud, beautiful sound is part of heaven. It is filled with it. The Bible also tells us that while heaven's not silent, creation is not silent. We don't have time to go there, but I invite you to go reread Psalm 19, where it tells us all of creation, the purpose, declares the glory of God. It is universal. It never ceases. Day after day, it utters its voice. Revelation, I'm sorry, Psalm 19 says. You remember what Jesus said? Whenever the Pharisees, when he's coming in on the, 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 uh, the triumphal entry, and the Pharisees come and they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees says, says uh, Rabbi, rebuke your disciples. They knew, the Pharisees knew exactly what, what they were attributing to, to Jesus, that he was the Messiah. And what does Jesus say? If they were silent, the rocks would cry out. God deserves praise. He does. It's in heaven. It's on the earth. And while heaven and earth are never silent concerning the praise of God, there is one time in the Bible when God was silent. You know when that was? In Matthew chapter 27, verse 45, as the Lord Jesus Christ hangs on the cross, bearing God's judgment for sinners, he cries out, to the Father. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
and the Father is silent. The cry of the Son. God was silent as His Son bore the judgment for us. And heaven is now silent as judgment is about to fall on those that rejected that sacrifice. Time after time after time. And John says it remains that way for for a half an hour, 30 minutes. It's a significant scene, isn't it? Can you imagine John seeing this vision? Now, he's seeing this vision. Heaven is timeless. It's eternal. But, but time is still, still taking place on earth. So John is seeing this vision, and this vision is obviously very long. He sees it on the Isle of Patmos. And here is a 30-minute is a period in that vision when John is silent on the earth as silence is in heaven. I want you to note that there are no cheers of glee as the seventh seal is broken. There are no victory cries, no gladness at the judgment that's coming to the wicked, no rejoicing, only silence. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23 says, God takes no pleasure in the death of the, of the wicked. Have I... Any pleasure in the death of the wicked declares the Lord God and and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. He takes no pleasure and he shows mercy all the days of his life. And we saw last week, even, even after the consequences are coming, God still sends out witnesses. And those those that, that will be saved through the tribulation period will be will be numerous. Another passage that you know well, First Timothy chapter 2. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. That's God's desire. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And while that is his desire, we also know that's not what's going to take place. All men will not be saved. Men are filled with wickedness, and God is filled with mercy. And how should we feel about that? Well, I think Charles Spurgeon communicates that well in his quote. Spurgeon said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. God has shown His mercy in delaying judgment. God is showing His mercy right now in delaying judgment. And Peter tells us that's because of His long-suffering nature, but you should not mistake that for God's indifference or that somehow He can't bring judgment or that He won't bring judgment. He will judge, but he takes no pleasure in the results. He's glorified in the results. He's glorified in justice, but he takes no pleasure, and neither should we. There is joy in heaven, the Bible says, over how many sinners that repent? One sinner that repents, and there's silence in heaven over the thousands and millions of sinners who are about to perish in the book of Revelation, and that's what our attitude 
should be as well. We rejoice in the salvation of others, and we should be filled with awesome grief about anyone that is headed for hell. There's the silence, and that silence is is because of what's about to be announced. There's the deafening silence in, in heaven, and then there are these announcing angels. There are seven angels with trumpets. And John begins in verse 2, and he describes their position and their purpose. Look at what he says in verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God. There's, there's their position, and here's their purpose. And to them were given seven trumpets. Seven angels, seven trumpets. Following the half an hour of silence, John sees these seven angels, and they're described as those who stand before God. There's a, there's a definite article describing this particular group. They're the angels. There's a specific group of angels. And the word that's used for their stand, they stand in the presence of God, is in the perfect tense. It, it, it indicates that that's where they have been and that's where they remain. These seven angels is a specific group, and they remain in the very presence of God. There's this there's this spatial reality. The closer that, that you are to the throne, the more significant the group is. And they're around the presence of God, and they remain there. Now, we're not told specifically who these angels are, just like we're not told who a number of, of angels and elders and others that are mentioned in Revelation and in the Bible. But, but you, can, you can surely assume that they're high-ranking, given their their position and purpose. And they're each given a trumpet. And they prepare to blow at God's command. They're given the trumpet. They place the trumpet to their mouths, but they no air flows through their lips. They're poised. They're waiting for the signal. They're waiting for the moment in which they will blow and announce. The trumpet is, is a significant musical instrument in the Bible. I even found some commentators who said it is, the trumpet is the most significant instrument, musical instrument in all of the Bible. And I first read that and I thought, I've never thought of that before. The trumpet being the most... And the reason they were saying that is because the trumpet is all through the Bible used for many different things. The trumpet is used to summon the congregation of Israel. The trumpet is used to sound the alarm in war. The trumpet is used to announce news in the Bible. The trumpet is used to proclaim new kings. The trumpet is used in worship. The trumpet is used to announce the rapture and the resurrection of the saints. And Zephaniah says that it will be part of the announcement of the of the day of the Lord. Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 and 16 says, Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. And then he says, a day of trumpet and a battle cry. The trumpet is significant. And each of these seven trumpets unleash a specific judgment that's even greater in intensity than the first. The trumpets won't be even as bad as the bowls. I think you see that. Even the mercy of God, when we're reading through the trumpets, whenever we get there, a third of the sea, a third of the earth, a third of the waters 
God is still showing mercy in limiting His judgment. And when the bowls come, it's, it's the full wrath un, undiluted. I mean, all along through Revelation, even in the day of judgment, God is restraining, God is witnessing, God is pleading with men to repent. And the Bible says they refuse to repent. The first four trumpets destroy the earth's habitat. The second, the, the next two trumpets, five and six, unleash demonic destruction like mankind has never experienced. And then the seventh and final trumpet introduces the final outpouring of God's wrath, which is the seven bowl judgments. And they'll be destructive, but as I said, not final. The first angel blows his trumpet. A third of the earth is burned up in verse 7. The second, a third of the sea turns to blood. The third trumpet, a third of the rivers and springs. The fourth, a third of the sun, the moon, and the stars will be struck. And on and on. They're poised to blow. John sees the scene. But there's something else that takes place before... They blow the trumpet. Besides the silence in heaven, besides the angels that are poised to blow the trumpet, there's something else that takes place before they blow. And there's this mingled incense of the saints. And the symbolism in this is absolutely breathtaking. Look if you would at verse 3. It says, Then another angel, a different angel from the seven, having a golden censer, the fire pan, came and stood at the altar. And he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all of the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Now John sees another angel who came and stood at the altar in heaven. And, and this is the exact same altar that, that Isaiah sees in Isaiah 6, 6 and also that Ezekiel sees in the vision of the throne room. This is the scene of the heavenly temple. And we're told in the book of Exodus and also in Hebrews that the tabernacle in Israel and the temple of the children of Israel were representations of what was in heaven. And all of it, all of the ordinance of, of the law was symbolic, was to teach us something clean and, and unclean. The sacrifices and, and how the temple is set up with an outer court and an inner court and then, a, and then a holy place and a most holy place and where God resided and how God is separated from the people and all the ceremonial cleansings and washings. And the fact is, Hebrew says that the sacrifice had to be made once a year and, and then regular sacrifices had to be made for, um, for, for, for not atonement offerings but for fellowship. Offerings. All of this is symbolic. They're shadows. They're types. Foreshadows of what the Lord Jesus Christ would do. And in the temple here, what John sees, there's this outer court, there's this inner court, and we're looking in the inner court where worship and sacrifices took place. And as you know, in the temple, in the tabernacle, on the earth, the most holy place was the holies of holies. And that was where the very presence of God dwelt or resided. It was the place that the high priest entered once a year. And that was on the Day of Atonement. And he placed blood on the, on the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is the lid of the, of the Ark of the, of the Covenant. I can still remember plain as day. 
sitting in a conference or a, a seminar. He goes, I believe the first time that I ever came to Lynchburg. And Dr. I went to, it was a super conference. You remember super conference? They used to have super conference? And Dr. Harold Wilmington did a little seminar thing on the temple. I remember the in that, he was showing the diagrams, and I can remember the first time that it all came together for me in the as far as the Ark of the Covenant and, and the mercy seat. And here in this place that no one can enter, there is the Ark of the Covenant, and the and the, the presence of God hovers above the Ark of the Covenant. And the inside the Ark of the Covenant, besides the the, the rod and, and, and manna, is the commandments. And placed on top of the, of the box, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, is the mercy seat. And God says that's where He will meet His people. And you've seen pictures of it. There's this, this, the lid that's on the top and the, and the angels with their, the cherubims with their wings folded. And the blood is placed there on top of the, of the mercy seat. Now get this picture. God's people Israel are separated from Him. And there's a mediator, one mediator, that is allowed to go in this place once a year. And in the Ark of the Covenant, there is the, the commandments of, of man that we have broken and the children of Israel has broken that deserve judgment because they're the eternal, it's the eternal law of God. And there is the, the, the holiness of God, the very glory of God, the presence of God that hovers above those commandments. And if there is not... Something that shields that holiness of God for God to look upon the broken commandments. There is no hope. So God, in His mercy, places a mercy seat between His righteousness and our unrighteousness. And on that mercy seat, the mediator comes in and he sprinkles the blood of an innocent animal so that God's people can be right with Him, protected and covered until the Lamb of God comes. And in that mercy seat is the cross. Over and over and over, God says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And as God looks through the blood, He doesn't see the broken commandments. He sees the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Inside the ark, above the ark, between the ark, and the blood is placed there, and God's wrath is satiated, at least at that point. Right outside the holies of holies of the temple, immediately by the entrance, was the altar of incense. You had the outer court, you had the inner court, you had the holy place, the holy place is where the altar of incense was. You had the, the veil or the curtain. Behind the veil of the curtain, you had the holies of, of holies. And right outside the holies of holies, in the holy place, as it's called, immediately by the entrance, there's this altar of incense. There were two altars in the, in the temple. There was the altar of incense, and then there was the brazen altar. The brazen altar is where the blood sacrifices took place. The altar of incense is where the... The worship of, of incense took place, representing the prayers of God's people. 
In the Old Testament, the priest twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening, would go to the, to the brazen altar where the animals were sacrificed and they would be consumed by fire. He would take coals from that sacrificial altar. He would carry them in a fire pan into where the altar of incense was and he would use those coals to ignite the incense. And the incense would fill the holy place covering the the entrance of the of the holies of of holies now if you're not following the symbolism there let me explain it to you the fragrant smoke that would arise toward heaven was symbolic of of the prayers of God's people and the coals of uh, from the sacrificial altar purified the incense and it would light it And God can then receive the worship because of the sacrifice. Now, I want you to notice the picture that John describes here in heaven. Look at verse 3 again. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar, having much incense. He should offer it with the prayers of of all of the saints upon the golden altar, which is before the throne. There's the altar of incense. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the the angel's hands. The angel takes the golden censer or fire pan in one hand. He's given much incense, which symbolizes the prayers of the saints. He ignites it, and now this worship is rising before the throne. So, here's the question. Who are the... Who are these saints? Who are these prayers of the saints that are combined with the incense that makes this so significant here? Well, look back to chapter 6, verse 9. When the fifth seal is opened, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held, and they cried with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you will judge and avenge our blood on those who are on the earth? They're given white robes. They're given an honored position. And God says something to them. Look at halfway down through verse 11. He says to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed are completed. At the fifth seal, the the force that initiates that judgment is not horsemen, it's not cataclysmic events, it's the saints' prayers under the altars. And under the altar in heaven, the souls of the martyrs cry out to God, How long, O Lord, before you judge and avenge us? And God says, Rest a little while longer, and then it will come. He says, the time of your prayers will be answered. And that's going to come in the future, the fifth seal. And that time is now. As the angels get ready to blow the trumpets and they unleash the final judgments, God takes the prayers of the suffering saints, combines them with the fire from His altar, purifies them, ignites them as in, a, in a pleasing aroma of worship before His throne. And then He does something else. Look at what else this angel does in verse 
5. Then the angel took the, the censer, the fire pan, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and earthquake and an earthquake. He adds God's fire to it. He hurls it to the earth, and there were peals of thunder. I mean, the scene is abrupt, and, and John wants you to feel that. Feel what the angels felt. There's this beautiful scene of, of incense filling heaven. Heaven is filled with the prayers of, of God's saints who died for their testimony for, for Christ. And those prayers are mingled with fire, and it's worshipful. And then the angel who has the, has the fire and the incense coming from his hand, ascending before the throne, takes it and hurls it to the earth. Everyone must have been stunned. And heaven's silence is broken as the final judgment is initiated. Noises and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And that's the significance of this incense and the angel throwing it. As heaven's silence is broken and the final judgment is initiated, it's initiated in direct response to the prayers of God's people. Mingled with His righteous justice is the prayers of the martyrs. God's judgment will come in response to those prayers. Do you ever think your prayers are meaningless? Think again. God hears them and He answers them in times, even if He doesn't answer them while you're on the earth. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Can you imagine some of these martyrs praying even as the last bit of life drained out of them? being persecuted for the cause of Christ, having done nothing. And those prayers are all recorded and kept in heaven, and now they're mingled together, and they're hurled back to the earth. Some of those prayers are crying out to God for justice. He knows, He sees, and will render perfect justice one day. Some of those prayers are for the, the salvation of others. What did Jesus say from the cross? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. If you, if you ever want to be moved, read Fox's Book of Martyrs or some of those other places and listen to those that at the moments before they go to the very death for the testimony of Christ are actually praying for the people that are lighting the fire because they understand that there is an eternal fire that they're facing one day that's much greater Don't ever forget when you're looking at the judgment of God that you deserve it too. And if it wasn't for the Lord's mercy, that's exactly what we would get. Our response to God's judgment is not celebration, but silence as we're gripped with what is coming. And always remember that God is merciful even to the end. Despite all of the terrifying judgments, despite of what will come, God still has 144,000 witnesses. He'll still send the two witnesses. He'll still send the angel who will come through heaven proclaiming peace through Jesus Christ. 
And really, it summarizes our witness. Our witness, as the Apostle Paul says, is we tell men, be warned. God has appointed a day in which he's going to judge the world in righteousness, specifically by the man Christ Jesus. And not only do we just tell them to be warned, we also tell them to be saved, don't we? God has already poured out his judgment upon his son. And if you'll trust in, in that as your substitute, then you can be saved from the wrath that is to come. Look at verse 6. So the angels, who had the seven trumpets, prepared themselves to sound. The judgment of God, whether it's in tribulation or the day of reckoning, which could be your death, is poised at the door. You're hanging at the precipice. I don't know when I'm going to die. I don't know when you're going to die. Nobody knows that. But what I do know is the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. I don't know the day of your death, but I do know that you will face God whenever that day comes. And you'll face God either covered in the blood of Jesus Christ so God can have mercy and look through that blood and pass over your sins, or you'll stand before God naked and alone in your sins. And I can promise you, God would take great pleasure. Heaven would rejoice if you would repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ before it is eternally too late. I would rejoice. Don't you bow your heads. Father, what do we say to such an awesome and terrifying scene other than what your word has proclaimed? Father, what do we say in joyful praise to the mercy that you show us? But for the grace of God goes, goes any one of us, and I am thankful for that grace. Lord, I don't... I don't. I can't comprehend it. I don't understand why you you are so kind, so merciful to me, a sinner, and yet you are, and you're glorified in that. It's not our ability to climb up to you that brings you eternal praise for all of all of heaven. It's it's the fact that you stooped to us. You came and met us where we are and even pursued us, opened our eyes, sent people to share with us. Even whenever we shook our fists in your face, you still pursued us. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Oh, Father, I pray while there is this black backdrop of judgment, people would see the glorious glimmer beautiful shining of the gospel of Jesus Christ as the day of salvation is still open. They would repent and believe. Help us, Father, to share the gospel with others and never rejoice in anyone's judgment. In Jesus' name.
Amen.